It's good to see everyone this morning. Anyone have a garden? A few garden people here. It's, you know, we're, we're coming off of spring. I don't know whether we're still, I guess we're still technically in spring. I don't know, in Southern California, what, do we even have seasons? What makes a good garden? Color. Color? Color? So, okay, one at a time. So, okay, how do you, how do you get a good garden to grow? You pray, <laughs> because I never have, so so that I'm not sure. <laughs> what else? What do you do? Vitamins, working fertilizer into the soil. Okay, working the soil. What was that? Pulling weeds. <laughs> Maybe that would help. <laughs> Pulling weeds. What? Prune the plants. Okay, so make sure they don't overgrow on top of each other. It's really hard early on because sometimes they look the same. <laughs> Pull things, and Susie's like, "No, my vegetables." Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so there's all kinds of things that that make a good garden. This morning, as we move forward with the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ, we move into a, a different stage of Christ's teaching where He's beginning to use parables and He's beginning to use stories to to drive home points. And this morning, the story has to do with soils and planting and seed and something that I'm not necessarily very familiar with, but um, makes a lot of sense as we as we dig through it. Keep in mind where we've been with the life of Christ. And last week, we were looking at some of the opposition, and we've seen his ministry growing and people coming in droves and that he's become a celebrity of sorts in the area. And we have several different kinds of people that are coming. And we have the genuine disciples that are there to learn. And his apostles are part of that. It's also a bigger category of people that are, are eager to learn and that are, are, are truly repentant and truly members of the kingdom of God that Jesus is coming to, to, to bring. Then you also have a whole group of people that are along for the ride, that are there because of the celebrity of Jesus and because of the healing. And what will we see today? You know, will we see someone else lowered through a roof that stands up and, and walks for the first time? And, and those people may be following Jesus around, but they may be, be lulled into this idea that they're followers of Christ, and in reality they aren't. Because they haven't repented. And they haven't come to grips with what Jesus is truly saying. So you have that group of people. Then as we saw last week, we have the, the Pharisees and the scribes, many of which were, were not just along for the ride and not just skeptics, but were adamantly opposed to the, the mission of Christ. That were there to stop Him at all costs. And so we have this group, and, and we have these three groups of people and ver- varieties between them that are following Christ around. And so we come to a point in Christ's ministry where a line has to be drawn in the sand. And we saw that last week when he confronted his family who was trying to distract him from mission, and he directly confronted the Pharisees and called them out that they are actually wor- working for Satan. And that they are opposing the Holy Spirit. And because of that opposition to the Holy Spirit, and because they have rejected His work in their lives, that that comes down to the unpardonable sin. A sin that will will not be forgiven. 
And so Jesus now moves forward uh, at this point, a critical line where how do you share your message with those that want to hear? How do you share your message with those that are receptive and build the disciples and teach the kingdom of God without taking that middle group and still having them think that, oh yeah, we're following Christ, everything's good, because they need to be confronted, and without taking the group that that has adamantly opposed the work and mission of Christ and giving them more fuel for that fire and giving them things that they will just abuse and mistreat and possibly mislead others with. And so Jesus begins a new style of teaching. A style that we're going to explore today in the first parable. And this first parable is, is at the beginning of the parables in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because it's the key to understanding all of the rest of the parables. So turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll see how does Jesus move the kingdom forward? Move his teaching forward? How does he truly reach to those that are receptive to his word? and teach and instruct. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And we begin to set the scene. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Sea of Galilee, he's still there. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, And we get into the first parable. Verses 1 and 2 are familiar territory for us. We saw that in chapter 3 of Mark, where at times that Jesus would take and go out in a boat just a little ways, and the, the contour of the land would make a type of natural amphitheater. And he could sit there without the crowds pressing in on him. And in this case, he's sitting on the boat, which which designates more teaching than preaching, instruction. And they're all able to hear him because of the, the layout of the land. And so picture the massive crowd that has come, that has come to hear, and some that have come to see what will happen next. Some that are there genuinely, some that are there to oppose. And we get to the parable in verse 3. Listen. He starts with the word listen. In some of your, your um, versions, it'll have an exclamation point afterwards. Because it's a, it's a word that Mark is going to use throughout the next 35 verses where he's talking about parables. He'll use it over and over and over again. Literally, hear this! This is important! Listen! And he goes into a story. And I've got a picture of the people sitting around thinking, that's odd. Maybe his family was right. Maybe he has sort of lost it. But they don't understand. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
The word for hear there that's used twice is the same word that's used as the first word of the parable. Listen. There's a number of things that we see, and we'll get into the exclamation a little bit later. But Jesus is, is drawing on very familiar territory as it was an agricultural area. And the, the farmers would often use just a disbursement method of sowing seeds where they would take a bag and take seed in their hand and they just scatter it and, and over the field. And the field was usually prepared ahead of time. It's been a lot of debate. Well, was it plowed after? Was it plowed before? But as they've, they've um, done research is what they did, it was plowed both probably where they would plow it and get the soil ready to where they would break the fallow ground and then they'd scatter the seed out and then they'd probably turn the soil over again to put the seed under. And along these, these areas where they were farming though, don't think of the, the, the places where we go, you know, central California where you have roads that go beside and they're all nice and squares and everything. At times these were a little bit of meandering fields depending on the land depending on the rocks of the land. And, and they would have paths through them that were your way to get from one place to another. So that's where the hard ground comes. And the Palestinian ground had, had many rocks in it, so it wasn't uncommon to have rocky soil that, that um, was just filled with thorns and filled with all kinds of other things. And so Jesus is drawing on very familiar territory here. But he doesn't at all say what it's about yet. And, and for some, for us, we think, well, well, duh. It, it's about God's word and the sower and Jesus is sowing God's word and how people are responding. Keep in mind, they don't have the context of the New Testament and they haven't studied it before and, and they're hearing this story for the very first time. The, this week or last week, we, we were tell, reading stories with our kids and at night we read some books and then we go to Bible time and read the Bible and, and one of the books we were reading was Cat Kong. I want to know who comes up with children's stories and, and where they're at in life. But it was the retelling of the story of King Kong, but with cat and mice. It was nuts. And, and Mark is hearing this for the first time, and all the kids are, and they've never heard the story of King Kong, and this cat is the beast, and the mice capture him, and the cat finally gets loose, and, and then they, they, they get the cat because they have this package, and it doesn't know what's in it, and they, they hold it out from the building, and it falls off, and curiosity kills the cat. And, and the, the whole thing is filled with those kinds of puns. You'll love it, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> And a, a, a couple days later, we're talking and, and we mentioned King Kong for some reason. I think Mark brought it up and we mentioned, well, that's a gorilla. It's like, no, Dad. You've got the story wrong. It was a cat and the mice brought him down. He had never heard the story before, so he had no context to know that this was a pun and it was a spoof on the original story. And, and so we read into this everything we know, but for the people hearing this, th- this is brand new. And they don't understand. But there's a couple of clues that Jesus uses in verse 3 and verse 9 that I mentioned when he starts by saying, listen, this is important, listen carefully. And when he uses the, the phrase that he uses at the end, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear, those are like giant neon signs saying, there's a lot more to this story than you're getting. It's actually not about a farmer. And it's not about how to grow a good garden. 
It's about something else. And that's key to understanding the parables is Jesus intends for there to be a follow-up reaction. He intends for people to say, wait a minute, there's more here, isn't there? I might have to dig a little. I might have to search it out. And so he gives clues that it's more than just a simple story. And now it comes to who's going to catch those clues. Who's going to dig a little bit more and who's going to go home and plant seed in the good ground because they think it's about gardening. And so that's the parable. And we get into now the results of the parable and what happens. And the first thing that we see in verse 10 is that when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, and so the crowds are gone, but his disciples and others that are disciples are with him, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. It's been, it's been sitting in their hearts all day. Okay, you meant something. What did you mean? In Matthew, we know that they, they even went as far as to say, why are you starting to teach differently? Why are you teaching in parables? And that's exactly the response Jesus was looking for. The disciples knew there was a treasure there to find, but they were lost as to how to find it. And they come and say, tell us, tell us, tell us. And we see the kernels of a receptive heart, an open heart that was seeking God's truth. And so Jesus answers in 11 and 12, and we could spend our whole morning on these two verses, and we're not going to because we're going to stay with the parable, but we're going to just touch on them briefly. Commentators have said these are the most difficult verses in Mark. And Jesus answers, and he, sa- and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And our response after reading that should be what? Did that just say that? And so I want to briefly work through it, understanding we could, we could talk more about it later, but it's something we don't want to ignore. As we work through Scripture, we should just never skip over things because I don't know what that means. But we should wrestle with it and we should try. And to help us understand, we have to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's actually quoting Isaiah 6. Hold your finger there and turn over to Isaiah 6. And in worship this morning, we read part of Isaiah 6. We read the first six, seven verses of it while we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. Oh, and it was just so amazing to worship together this morning, to hear us proclaim the holiness of God. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we read about the holiness of God, and then picking it up at verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah speaking, Here am I, send me. And in 9 and 10 are what Jesus quotes. So it's right after the holiness of God in the face of a rebellious Israel. In the face of an Israel that has turned themselves from the message of God and is unreceptive to the message of God. And God says to Isaiah, and he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's about the same, isn't it? But the context of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting here is a people that have turned their backs on God. A people that have heard the message And God comes to Isaiah and says, who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. After he's confronted with the holiness and the greatness and the awesomeness of God. And he says, send me. And he's been cleansed with the coal. And God says, go and tell them the truth. Knowing full well that as he told them the truth, they would harden their hearts and they would turn. It would drive them away from God. Because, because they were unrepentant and unresponsive. And so God is telling Isaiah, go fail. Go fail. It'd be like, I know Jim started his new job this week, which we thank God for. And if, if you walked in and the first day you're, you're there and you meet with your boss and he says, you know, here's your task. I want you to spend all of your time on it. And by the way, there is no chance it will succeed. Woohoo! Ready to work, aren't we? Well, I guess as long as they give a paycheck. (laughs) That would be so discouraging. That's what God did to Isaiah. He said, go preach the truth. Go preach that they need to repent, that they need to turn back to me because I am a holy God and I will not stand for sin. But God knew that that message would harden their hearts. And their ears would hear less. And their eyes would see less. And their hearts would be confirmed in the judgment that was coming. Because a holy God must judge sin. There is no way around it. And that is the verse that Jesus quotes. And it's interesting that the scene that is before Jesus with the crowds that were there earlier that day and then the evening as He's instructing His disciples, the scene is not that different from the scene that Isaiah faced where people were deliberately turning from God and we know from from the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit deliberately attributing the work of God to Satan, which is a very dangerous place to be. interesting as, as Jewish rabbis teach that section and taught in, in later Old Testament and in the early church era, they always taught that section with a sense of hope. Because to them, it was judgment for where they were at. The message would continue to harden their hearts, but hope for a future where that would not be the case. And all of that understanding of Isaiah has to come into the Mark passage because Jesus is using that as his illustration. And there have been so many attempts. I've got to say, the commentaries, everyone was probably different on this passage. Consensus was a laughable thing. And so we come to this passage very humbly, realizing that this is part of the mystery of who God is and how God works. 
And so I'd like to just mention a couple thoughts and then get back to the parable because we just can't spend a lot of time. One of the challenges is that the the Greek words for at the beginning of verse 12, so that, and, and bottom of verse 12, lest they should turn and be forgiven, those Greek words don't help the matter because they can mean either for the purpose of or as a result of, which means the passage could legitimately translated, they harden their hearts as a result of the parables or as a result of the teaching, or it could be translated as, as we see here that God's purpose in the parables is to harden their hearts. And so every commentator was just all over the place, depending on what theology they were trying to fit the verses within. But some points that I think we have to see, because I I think we can't get away from that God is intentional here. As much as people try, that is the, the natural reading of the text. But what is he being intentional with? The first point is he's... The purpose of the parables is to test and reveal genuineness. To test and reveal genuineness. Jesus is directing His ministry and His teaching to those that were receptive. To those that were truly repentant. To those that were just giving a sham of repentance. This was a dividing line that said, repentance is not for you because your heart is not right. And so it really was to test the spiritual receptivity of the hearer. Context, context, context. When we're trying to understand something, look around. And and this passage falls in the middle of a parable that we're going to, to look at the meaning of that is all about receptivity to the gospel and who truly is saved and who truly is not. Even though some appear to be and some appear to be repentant and have forgiveness, they actually do not. That's the context within the parable. The prior context is a group that again blasphemes the Holy Spirit and now is under God's judgment. It's amazing if we want to understand God's Word, never look at a single verse. God's Word usually explains God's Word if we're willing to take the time to look. And so inside this parable... Jesus is saying the purpose of parables is to test the spiritual receptivity of the hearer. In verse 11, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. And it's not that it's it's something that God doesn't want to reveal, but it can be only understood through divine revelation. It's foolishness like Cat Kong to those that don't have divine revelation. And that's mystery, the mystery of the kingdom. It's a new teaching that God is revealing. But for those outside, those that are unreceptive, those that have not repented, everything is in parables. I'd underline the word everything because it's not just the teaching. The whole life of Christ, the whole purpose, His ministry, it's all in parables or riddles to them. And so we see the purpose of Jesus is to reveal and veil all at the same time. To reveal to those that are genuine, to veil to those that aren't. One author said, to veil the truth from those who are profane or indifferent, who could not profit from it, who would only distort it. 
See, truth has a way of doing this. Should Isaiah have changed the truth of repentance? Should he have changed and said, you know what, Israel, you're not really that bad. So let's soften your hearts by changing the message. Absolutely not. Should Jesus have changed the message? Well, you don't really have to repent fully. You can hold on to some things. You don't have to give yourself to the kingdom of God. No, because that would be a lie. And so truth will divide those that are genuine and those that aren't. It will sift the wheat from the chaff. It literally forces a decision. And in that way, it forces a decision between those that are not genuine and not repentant who do not receive and should not receive forgiveness and those that are receptive that God welcomes into His kingdom. See, parables were hard. I think we make the mistake sometimes of assuming parables are just sermon illustrations. They're completely different. Sermon illustrations hopefully serve to illustrate a point. Parables were designed to force a decision on a point. To be obscure enough where you had to dig and you had to to learn and you had to be receptive to the message. They were hard. And so one of the reasons Jesus is bringing out in this passage is to test and reveal genuineness. Second reason for speaking in parables is judgment. And this comes to where I believe he's going in verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Judgment is what Jesus was just talking about with the scribes and Pharisees saying, you crossed a line and now there is no forgiveness of sins for you. This story immediately follows that. They're connected. We have to study the Bible together. And so he is speaking to those who through hardness of heart have turned their back on the, on the working of the Holy Spirit and they've crossed a line where now God will judge their sin. And that judgment is just. And that judgment is right and it is holy. And he's passing judgment on them for their own actions and their own hardness. Calvin on this passage has this quote, they must endure the blame of their own blindness and hardness. And so what we see here, I believe, is a result of their own blindness and hardness through blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It does not preclude repentance for those that are receptive, but it is a a statement of judgment on those that are not. So we need to move on to the parable, but two principles of parables that, that I hope we get out of that, those verses. The first, and these, these, are, these are great words, so enjoy them. Consecutive spiritual assimilation. Consecutive spiritual assimilation. I did not make these words up. I can't take credit for them. But um, they're from actually my professor on the Gospels. Consecutive spiritual assimilation. And the idea is when we respond to spiritual truth, the more we respond, the more we're able to understand. It's consecutive. It builds on itself. And so, and Jesus is using parables to to do this, 
the, the more that we're receptive, the more that we seek, the more that we dig, the more the parables make sense. What a great tool. What a great tool for us to understand that the more we understand God's truth and the more that we dig into it, the clearer the next round becomes. I don't know if you've ever had any assemble-at-home furniture. Anyone ever put those together? Have you tried to do those without the instructions? Have you succeeded? Wow. (laughs) Here's the thing. You open the instructions, at least I do, and I read through them the first time. They make no sense. The pictures often don't match the parts. The, the, The instructions aren't always in order. They aren't always in English. And, and I'm like, I can't make sense of this. This is nuts. And, and so what's interesting though is as I try, and I, I usually take the first one with the instructions, it's a good place to start. And you start to do it and you figure a couple things out and then you go back and look at the instructions and what happens? It makes a little more sense because you have a little bit more context, a little bit more body of understanding and knowledge to, to understand it with. Go back and that helps you understand usually the next thing. You do that and you try it and then you come back and now suddenly the next thing is clear. And Oh, that, that is a picture of the part. It just was upside down and in a mirror in, I don't know, in the dark. And, and, and it just starts to make more sense. Spiritual truth is that way. That's consecutive spiritual assimilation. The more we respond to it, the more we're able to respond to it. Jesus in his answer on the parables actually answers that, that to, to whom has, has more will be given. But the second principle is progressive spiritual atrophy. Progressive spiritual atrophy. When we reject or ignore God's truth, we harden. When we reject or ignore God's truth, we harden. The more we ignore God's Word, the more we let it gather dust on our shelf, the harder it is to understand. The more closed we are to the truth that the Holy Spirit is trying to work in our hearts. And that is where Jesus is going with the parable and with His explanation of the parable. Now I know I skipped one point because I wanted to use this as as really the final point in verses 10-12. through One of the purposes of parables, point number three, is to sovereignly use man's rejection or reception for God's purposes. To sovereignly use man's rejection or reception for God's purposes. Did God know that those would reject? Absolutely. And we get into primary and secondary causes and in especially in the Hebrew mind, they understood that a primary cause was something that God directly caused, an act that God directly decreed. And a secondary cause was an act that God allowed. But both to them worked together under the sovereignty of God for His purposes. For instance, in Job, did, did God cause the events on Job? In one way, yes, because he's, the, he's sovereign over all, but no, he allowed Satan to attack Job. And so that was a secondary cause, 
but all of it under the will or the plan of God. And so when it comes down to it, if we read something, lest they turn and be forgiven, we don't have to explain it away because God can do what God wants to do. And we know that He won't do what violates His character because He has chosen not to, because that is His character. But God can do what God wants to do. And we have so many ways that we want to limit that. But understand, we may not have all the information God does. And there may be more behind these statements than we understand. And it comes down to, do I trust that God is sovereign? Do I trust that He's using this to judge sin? Do I trust that He's using it to sift those that are truly repentant from those that are, are, are falsely repentant? Yes. And my encouragement is that we proclaim the sovereignty of God. Can God use their decision to reject or accept? Absolutely. Can He cause that if He wills? Absolutely. We must be careful to not limit God's sovereignty. Both by saying He can't use human choices, which limits God's sovereignty, and by saying He can't do this, which limits God's sovereignty. So as we come to the parables and the difficulty of the parables, our God is sovereign. And we do not understand Him. And praise God, we don't. Because he is God and we are not. So now we come to verse 13. The explanation of the parable. Which is really sort of the point of the passage. That 10 through 12 needed some time. So let's read at verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And we see here that this is the key to understanding all the parables. The receptivity, the the desire to know truth. Verse 14, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. and And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so we get to the first kind of heart. The first kind of receptivity that God is talking about here. And the sower here... The Jews would would think first of God being the sower in the Old Testament, but here the sower is Jesus Christ and He's proclaiming the kingdom and it's the message of repentance and the message of the kingdom. And the big picture that we're going to see in all four of these, and I think I wrote this in your notes, is our receptivity to God's Word directly affects its fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. How open we are to understanding God's Word and letting it affect us directly affects the fruit in our lives and in others. And so we see four types of hearts, and each of these are in a progression that gets closer and closer to repentance until finally one that is receptive. And the first one we see there in verse 15 is the hard heart. The hard heart. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And they would have understand it. These are the seeds that are on the the trodden path that there's no chance of them to grow and the birds just come and eat them right away. 
And these are the, the ones that Jesus directly addressed as workers of Satan. The scribes and the Pharisees. This kind of person never gives the word a chance. Comes in with arms folded. Says, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, and they're hard to the truth of God. They're hard to the truth of Jesus bringing forgiveness and repentance. And Satan snatches away the truth of the kingdom and the truth of the word. Doesn't change it, but snatches it out of their hearts before it ever takes hold. And they have given themselves to Satan because of a hard heart. Sort of like being on an, on an airline flight. And what happens at the beginning of every airline flight? Stewardess comes up, holds up a couple things. How many people listen? <laughs> couple do. I watch on a plane, and people are thumbing through the, the, the air mall or whatever it is, and because we, they're just close to it. Now, is that information vital? Could save their lives, but completely oblivious to it. The hard heart. Verse 16 and 17, we get to the second heart, the shallow heart, the heart that's more concerned about things around them than the truth of who God is. Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. And this is the ground where it, it's, it's hard and, and rocky underneath, but a thin layer of soil has, has come with the winds probably come on top. And so the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so just as if there was a thin layer of soil and you put a seed on it and you watered it, it would spring up. The roots just go down to the hard rock and they can't go any further. And so it's just on the surface of, of the dirt there. And when any sort of pressure comes on that kind of plant, and sometimes on our, our concretes, some dirt will come and a little weed will grow up. It's amazing. You can just grab the weed and pick it up. Because there are no roots. And Jesus is talking about that kind of Christian. The one that is brushed with Christianity. That hears the good news and, and sings the songs and maybe goes to a retreat and has a mountain high and yes, praise God. And, and, and there are no roots. And no depth. And it's simply an emotional Christianity. And there is danger. There is danger if we don't go deep and build roots and have a solid understanding of God's Word. Sometimes I think we can all retreat into this because it takes work to be in God's Word. It's easy to want to come on Sunday and want someone just to give us some, some practical things to do that can send us home with. And then we know what to do for that week without ever digging into the, the depth of God's Word and understanding where that's founded and, and the basis of truth. But it's easy. And it looks effective at first. But what Jesus says is when the troubles start on account of the Word, when the trials start, then it's uprooted and it's gone. When things get tough, they bail. D.L. Moody said, I never saw a useful Christian who was not a student of the Bible. What a great quote. I never saw a useful Christian who was not a student of the Bible. 
And so Jesus is warning about a heart that is shallow, that just wants to hear the, the surface of things, that never wants to do the work of digging into God's Word. And that's not a popular thing to say in an era where we have churches springing up all over the place that wants to define God's Word by how you feel about it and, and wants to, to simply give, give us how to live and not give us why we live that way that doesn't want to confront us with the character and the holiness and the righteousness of God Almighty. Digging into the Word is that important. See, these fell away. And it's not that they lost their salvation, but they were never truly saved. Because they never were the good soil, the repentant, receptive soil. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the distracted heart. Verses 18 and 19. Let's read that together. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. The distracted heart where there's priorities and materialistic priorities that we just can't surrender, that we can't put aside. And just as you you were mentioning that you have to weed a garden, which is very, very good insight. But but what happens if you don't weed the garden? We, We don't have a lot of time to weed our garden, and we can't even tell where the plants are anymore and the weeds. Because they literally, the the weeds... We'll have to talk to God about this sometime, but they grow better and faster and thicker and stronger than the good plants in our garden. And it's hard to get them out. And we've lost several years of gardens because we haven't had a soil that was absent of weeds and distractions. See, he mentioned some things. The cares of the world... Literally, the anxieties or the worries of the world. There's a lot to worry about in life. And we could spend all of our time worrying about it. And in reality, we're, we're, we're struggling with who God is when we worry. We're struggling with His sovereignty. Because God is still God. And we get anxious about things and usually we're the most anxious when the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us the most. And we're not giving in to Him. So the cares of this world, everything that goes on, everything that I have, the deceitfulness of riches, earning money, taking care of the things that we buy with our stuff, getting the stuff to buy, and and long hours, and we can become so obsessed with that. Maybe we work so much we don't have time to get into the Word. Maybe we have so many toys that we're never in church on Sunday. All of these things are the deceitfulness of riches. And finally, he says, the desire for other things could be just anything we crave. Prestige, lust, maturity, wanting to be significant,
when Jesus is saying it's the word. It's the word. I don't know if you remember the shirts a while back now, but it's a baseball is life. The rest is just details. They had one that was hockey is life, and the rest is just details. And you know, they had one for everything, and they sold like hotcakes. But that's about priorities, isn't it? And that's the problem, is we let something else become life, and the word becomes just details. No, the kingdom is life. The word of God is life. The rest is just details that God will work out when we're faithful to Him and His Word. Great question to ask ourselves when we say, am I distracted? Is can I give these things up? Can I give these things up? Could I lose everything that I'm distracted with tomorrow and be fine? Or has it taken hold in my heart in a weed that is growing up? And I would also say for most of us, ourselves included, we need to simplify some things and make sure that the Word and the Kingdom is life and the rest is just details because we are being choked. And did you catch the results at the end of verse 19? The desire for other things enter in, choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. Do we want to be fruitful for Christ? Then let's free the clutter. Let's free the clutter. It's a little bit of what we're going to be doing. I I talked about on on the annual business meeting, but this Christmas we're going to do some things intentionally as a church to free some clutter. Clutter of good things, good concerns, good distractions, but clutter, and we're going to focus on being fruitful this Christmas. And then we'll get together and see what God does. I'm excited about it. I'm hoping no one shoots me. (laughs) But it's coming from this idea. One retired pastor was advising a young seminary student. See, pastors aren't immune to this. Was advising a young seminary student puzzling about what to do when he graduated. And he said, son, go where the money is. God is everywhere. The wrong advice. The wrong advice. The advice is go where God is calling you. Money is His to provide. Following God is life. The rest is just details. Finally, in verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, and a hundred-fold. And so the good soil is defined by three words, hearing, accepting, and bearing. And it's interesting, as you look at those, those are all in the present tense. They're all something we continue to do. It's not the ones who heard the Word and accepted it and bore fruit, but this is how we even today are to live life. Repentance is ongoing. And we want to be good soil. We want to hear the Word. Accept it. Believe it. Allow it to change us. Bear fruit. When we think of fruit, we're not just talking about new believers, although that's part of it, but we're talking about the fruit of what a kingdom life looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is 
love, joy, peace, and we can go on. That's fruit. But it's also reproducing. And the harvest is brought by, by God Himself. It's not something that we do because, oh, I'm really good soil. But it's an essential, fruit is an essential byproduct of those that are receptive to God's Word. No fruit, not receptive. Fruit, possibly receptive. Sometimes it's easy to take what we think are fruit and convince ourselves we're receptive. But I want to give you just some ideas. How do we put this into practice? How do we become good soil? And these come out of the whole 20 verses. First, be in God's Word through the week. Here. This is the here part of His instruction. Be in God's Word throughout the week. If in your garden you walk on the dirt six days a week, and then one day you throw some seed on it, do you have good soil? No. You have dead seeds. And so if we're to get something, when we come on Sunday morning, if you want to get more out of Sunday mornings, be in God's Word throughout the week. If you want to get more out of God's Word during the week, be in God's Word here at church on Sunday. The more that we, and again, this is the principle of the parable, the the progressive spiritual assimilation, the more that we come to God's Word and, and infiltrate it into our lives, the more we will get out of it. Someone comes and says, Pastor Ron, I just, I don't get anything out of, out of Bible study or I don't get anything out of Sundays. First question to ask is, well, how many other times are you in God's Word? Because if you're not turning the soil, the seed sits on top and dies. And you turn the soil on days other than Sunday morning. But when you do, you will see incredible results. Have you been hearing the Word? Meditating on it? Reading it? In Isaiah 28, in, in looking at how the Word of God works, it's for its precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And then the teachers were sort of making fun of it, the Gospel and God's Word, the God's Word that it wasn't this big grand revelation But really, it is precept upon precept, line upon line, word upon word, as it builds on itself. So if you want to get more out of God's Word, open it up. Be in it daily. Second, do we want to get more out of God's Word and be good soil? Come ready. On Sunday morning, come ready. When you go to God's Word, come ready. Make it a priority. So, so get out of our mind all the things that distract us. Maybe that means finding a place where we're not having the TV on or where we're not seeing the kids destroy the house or, or where we're not seeing whatever and, and find a place where the distractions and the thorns are out of our minds and dedicate ourselves to God's Word. On Sunday morning, it is vital that we come ready. And that starts the night before. That starts throughout the morning. On our way to church, what do we listen to? Sometimes we don't listen to anything and we just pray that, that God will, be, be, will, will show us His truth. Sometimes we'll listen to worship music. All of that is setting a readiness. Coming for worship. I cannot tell you how important it is that we worship together and come to the throne together.
All those things are, are part of coming ready. Third, come open. This is the accept part of verse 20. Come expecting and asking. Come receptive, repentant, and open to what God would have us change. God's word is the key. If we preach God's word faithfully, there are things the Holy Spirit will convict you of. If you're receptive. If you're open. Fourth, look for ways to share it with others. What are you learning? What are you reading? Find ways to share that with others. That's the bearing fruit, both to believers and non-believers. Maybe to your family. Dads, I encourage you, moms and dads together, lead the way and at least one time every day, just mention something that you learned about God that day. Something from God's Word. It doesn't have to be an hour-long thing. It can be one sentence. You know what? I read this verse about God's love today and it just changed how I viewed the whole day. It could be that simple and you're, you're teaching your children and you're bearing fruit and allowing God's Word to percolate in your lives and to infiltrate your whole life. And finally, go deep. Go deep. Don't settle with being a shallow studier. Read commentaries. Read other passages. Follow the little cross-references in your Bible. I used to sit and do that for hours when I, when I got my first cross-reference Bible. I'd follow that thing all over and be like, how did I get to this verse? This is, this is great. But don't settle with being a, a shallow listener, a shallow studier. And, and if I could say something else, don't settle with getting all of your, your, your depth from someone else's preaching and someone else's study. Sunday mornings will not make you a deep studier. Listening to podcasts of a bunch of preachers will not make you a deep studier. They will help, don't get me wrong. Come Sunday morning, listen to to godly men. But until you crack open the Bible yourself and learn how to dig in it, we're risking being shallow and the cares of the world ripping us out. I want to end with a challenge. I would ask you to take a week, take the next seven days, and let's see if we can put this into practice. I hope longer than that. But take seven days, and many of you are already doing this, and praise God, but for the next seven days, make sure every day, every day you spend time in God's Word. It can be the rooted readings, but I would also encourage you to read the next section of Mark. Read the rest of chapter 4 every day for a week. And just see what that does to our time together next week. Just see what coming ready and having the soil turned does as we worship together next week. That's all. little challenge. Can you read the rest of Mark chapter 4 every day for a week? And let the Holy Spirit begin to plant seeds in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, may we be people of your word people that do not settle with being shallow. But Lord, I pray our hearts would be receptive and open to your instruction, to your teaching, to your change in our lives. Lord, I praise you for your word. In your name, amen.